This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about really taking God's word for what it means. And it all comes under the, the heading of faith prepping that we talked about. Let me go ahead and explain this to you if I can. Um, whenever anybody sees bad things coming, uh, there's a possibility that we could lose our job. There's a hurricane that's off the coast. And so therefore, if you live in Florida, you prep for that. You buy a generator. If you have the money to do that, you go to the store and you buy milk and bread and water. I don't understand why people always do that. Milk and bread and water, just in case it happens. You board up your windows because you see calamity coming, and so therefore you prepare for it. It's prudent, it's smart, it's wise. If you have seven houses that are all boarded up and people are prepared and one house that isn't, and the hurricane comes through and that particular person is wiped away, you look at them and you go, that was That was crazy. You had an opportunity to prepare, and you didn't. So we're not talking about physical preparations when we're talking about faith prepping, although we'll deal with that in 2020. What we're talking about is seeing the situations that are facing our nation right now and preparing your faith to be able to confront those. Now, let me give you an example of what that means. See this verse behind me? This is from Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus basically tells his disciples, You know, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say Elijah, some say Moses, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets of old. Well, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the living God, the Son of God. And then all of a sudden, from that point on, it says, Jesus began to reveal to them the whole story. Son of man will go into Jerusalem. He'll be betrayed. He'll be tried. He'll be uh, beaten. He'll be killed, but he'll rise on the third day. Peter, of course, couldn't handle that. We have the Mount of Transfiguration uh, experience. It takes place soon after that. And and then all of a sudden, uh, after the Mount of Transfiguration experience, they, they come down from the mountain after seeing who this Jesus really is. They come down from the mountain, and here's a man who is going to the other disciples, the non-Peter, James, and John disciples, and saying, you know, can you cast this demon out of my son? And they said, we can't. We tried and tried and tried, and, and nothing's happened. And so Jesus comes down, sighs. You know, how long will I put up with you? Bring the board to me. Says a word. The man, the son is, is healed and miraculous things happen. But the disciples are troubled. What happened? I mean, we've been with the Lord all this time. We've seen what he's done. We've done exactly what he's done. But nothing happened. He comes down and shames us by just, really? Brings him in and, and heals us. So they come to him privately and they say, why couldn't we cast out the demons? Because of the lack of your faith. Because of the lack of your faith. It's not the words. It's not your attendance. It's not all the stuff that you've learned. It's not the pedigree. It's not how long that you've lived with me. It's not how many Bible verses you've quoted or how many, how many hours in prayer a day that you spend. It is because of the lack of your faith. And then Jesus says this, For I surely I say to you, if you have faith, as a mustard seed. 
If, conditional clause, if then, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, most of us don't deal with mustard seeds. He was using an example from their agrarian culture at that time. A mustard seed is quite small. He could have said something to us like this. If you had faith as the size of, a, I don't know, a couple grains of sand. Okay, I can kind of relate to that. Or if you had faith the size of, of, of a small ball bearing that, that came out of your watch. Oh, oh, okay. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, what, we, we could have done that? No, no, don't limit yourself. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Okay, all right, we're his disciples. Oh, I got it. So so this is like some of the, this is like a parody. This is like some example. This is like an an analogy. Surely you can't mean that because that is impossible, impossible. And then Jesus says this, Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, honest question. Is he lying? Is he trying to deceive them? Is he giving them examples to kind of make them believe one thing, but really he means something else? I don't mean everything's impossible for you, and I don't mean that you could really move that mountain, because maybe that's some phrase they used back then. That's that's not what I really meant. I'm really just trying to frustrate you. I'm trying to irritate you. I'm trying to just stick it in your face that you didn't have the faith to, to just heal this boy here when this man came to you. Is that what he's doing? Or did he really mean what he said? And if he really meant what he said, what does that say about us? What's the difference This is who you are. This is what you can do. This is what is possible for you because nothing is impossible for you. Jesus later on said, it's better for you that I go to the Father because when I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come to you and he'll live within you. And the works that I do, you will do actually greater works that you will do than I do because I'll be in you. What did Jesus do? He walked on water and he healed people and he spoke these words. They were just so empowered by the Holy Spirit that multitudes came to faith in him. There was nothing. He had no spirit of fear. He had nothing. And he promised that we would do greater works than him. So, is he lying? Is he making it up? Did he not really mean what he said, or is the problem with us? Many, many years ago, um, when I was in college and I was studying philosophy because I thought that is what made you wise, I read a story by uh, Soren Kierkegaard, and I've shared this with you before, about what church service is like. And he talked about the fact that the church service is like a, a bunch of geese, And they all come to the worship service and the pastor geese up there just tells them how they can fly and soar like eagles. And they all flap their wings and they make their little geese sounds and they get all excited about it. And as soon as the service is over, they waddle on back outside. Nothing changes. You know, this is what you are. This is who you are. This is what I provided for you. But if you don't have the faith to believe it, and if you do have the faith, if you don't exercise that faith, nothing ever happens. 
and we continue living like we do today, our religious experience is pretty much like the religious experience of the people that we respected when we were younger, and we're teaching our children that their religious experience and their relationship with Christ is pretty much like ours, and we just limp on towards lukewarmness. Yet Jesus said something different. Jesus says it doesn't have to be that way. If you have, and what he's saying here is the tiny little amount of, of, uh, of faith, we think that in order to move a mountain, I have to have a mountain-sized faith. No, no, because it's, it's not me that's doing it, it's the, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing it. So if I have just a tiny bit of faith, like, like a mustard seed, like a couple grains of sand, like, like something very, like the little screw that goes into your glasses that if you ever lose, you can't ever find it. Just something small like that. If you have that kind of faith, this is what can happen to you. I don't believe it. That's impossible. Nothing, nothing will be impossible for you. In the times in which we're living, we have to have the kind of faith that trusts God this much, that trusts him explicitly, that, that, that views him as truly a loving father, that we can go to him for anything. It, it's, it's, again, it's faith prepping, it's faith preparation, it's exercising that faith. And I've shared with you what faith prepping is. It's the ability to look at God's word, to understand what it says, to accept it for what it says, and then to believe it and act on that belief. And I've explained to you how important it is, and you're going to find out as time goes on, it's going to be getting more and more important. The question is, how do we become a faith prepper? You know, you have to learn how to study God's word. We have to learn how to pray. We have to be diligent in doing that. Hence the emails that go out each each day. And those emails are going to be getting increasingly more complex and increasingly more difficult because we're going to be dealing with increasingly more profound topics rather than just laying the stuff that's on the surface that Jesus loves me and that's enough because we need to exercise our understanding and exercise our faith and, and drive hard to be able to, to figure out what's going on here. Faith, like anything else, has to be used. Uh, Morgan likes to... Uh, likes to run marathons. I have no idea why. Lindsay has run a couple, half, half marathon, I think she, she did. And if you've ever done that, which of course I have not, but if you have ever done that, you don't just get up in the morning and decide you're gonna run 10 miles. It doesn't really work that way. I get tired driving 10 miles. You know, you start really small and you get up when you don't feel like it. You get up when it's cold and you get up when it's raining and you get up when everything and you say, it would be nice to just stay in bed. But there's a goal out there. There's there's something I'm achieve, trying to achieve. And so therefore, I'm going to exercise what I have. I get out there and I run the first time. And when I do, my legs are burning and my lungs are burning and I feel absolutely exhausted. The next morning I wake up, everything in my body hurts because I've exercised and moved muscles I haven't moved in a long time. And you know how it works. If there's no pain, there's no gain. So what I end up doing is I exercise those again and again and again, and I keep going, and the more I keep going, the, the pretty soon the pain goes away, and the muscle builds, and the endurance kicks in, and you have to desire it for it to happen. You want to exercise the spiritual gift of love? Find out what that's all about and have that kind of love? You have to exercise that, which means you have to choose to love people that are unlovable, which is really hard. 
grace or patience or joy or peace or any of the spiritual gifts. They're just not thrust upon you and you you get 100% of them that you exercise all the time. We have to choose to forgive, choose to offer grace. And the more we offer grace, then the the stronger that spiritual gift is in us. and, And it works the same way with faith. So how do you exercise faith? How do you have this kind of faith? It's really simple. You put yourself in situations or you interpret situations that build your faith. Here we are, James chapter 1. Now I want you to open your Bible to it. So don't, I want you to follow it in your Bible as we're also looking at it on the screen here. But it's a wonderful statement about faith and bad things. Faith and things that make us want to give up our faith. It says, my brethren, count or reckon it all joy, gladness. I'm giddy. When? When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. My brethren, count it all joy when you win the lottery. Count it all joy when God gives you everything that you need without even asking. Count it all joy when God just just blesses you because you're special and turns your life into this best life now. That's not what it says. It says, count it all joy when you really struggle. Now, our part problem is we read it and go, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What kind of trials are those? I don't know, my car didn't crank, and, and I didn't get invited to the party, and I had to work late this tonight. And, you know, we, we kind of view trials based on our own experience. And part of being a faith prepper is to be able to trust the Lord for what he says in his word by first determining exactly what that word says. And so we're going to just look at a couple words here to find out exactly what it means. And the key words here, fall. I don't know what that means. When I'm thinking about falling, it's like tripping and falling in a hole or something. Could mean falling off a cliff. Could mean falling in an abyss. I kind of like to know what the Lord is talking about here. Trials. Knowing. I got Is that gnosko or is that edo or is that some of the other words? What does testing mean? What does my faith mean? What does produces mean? And then I got patience listed twice. Then I have perfect listed twice, a perfect work that I may be perfect again and complete. So very simple. What I did is I wanted to know exactly what these words mean so I can get a, a, a general feel of what the context is that James is trying to tell us. So I simply looked the words up. It's not that hard. Fall means to be in the midst of something, to be totally surrounded, to be engulfed. It's not like, you know, I was coming, uh, taking some groceries. Uh, our Karen goes, you know, why is your knees scuffed up on your jeans? Well, I was bringing the groceries in and I tripped and fell. You know, I got up and dusted myself off and it's okay, but I'm fine now. It's not what it means. It's like falling in the ocean. It's like falling in a, in a pit, and I'm absolutely overwhelmed. I'm in the midst. I'm engulfed by it. I'm totally surrounded by it. A little more intense here. My brethren, count it all joy when you are absolutely overwhelmed, surrounded, and engulfed by various trials. That word means temptation. It means putting to the test. It means a state of adversity or affliction. Well, that's a little bit more than just my car didn't crank and my battery was dead. Affliction 
and adversity, pain. I'm, I'm being put to the test. I'm being able to be seen whether or not what I believe in is valid. Consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because that very testing, by the Greek word means to prove by affliction, to prove whether you truly have faith by suffering. I mean, that's exactly what the early church did. That's in the Old Testament. Almost every person whose faith was found to be genuine did it by suffering. Daniel in the lion's den and all those other people we see in the Old Testament, they're struggling. They're, they're afraid. Well, I'm beginning to get a different view here of this. My brethren counted all joy when I am engulfed and overwhelmed and, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do by afflictions and trials and temptations. And, 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 and they're trying to prove whether or not there's enough evidence to convict me of being a Christian. And what they're testing is my pistis, is my faith, my firm conviction, my belief in the truth, the assurance I have that God's word is true, that I can trust him, that he is who he says he is. Often wonder why people abandon the faith during dark times. They're being tested and they find out that they're they're. Firm persuasion and conviction and insurance in the truth of God is only based on the fact that God does good things for them. But when God allows bad things to happen because he is sovereign, they abandon. Count it all joy when your faith is tested. Why? Because that testing produces something. And what it produces is whatever it is desire, its desire is to produce in you, but it produces it to the very end. It's not going to give up until it's complete. This is a finished work here. I have to learn that lesson again. Not if this was produced in you the way the word says. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Again, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The testing of your faith produces your ability to persevere under hard times, your ability to remain under, to bear under, to endure. First couple centuries of the Christian church, it was a governmental pastime to kill Christians. Well, it hasn't happened in our nation. They would kill them in the most horrific ways. They would bring them out to the big coliseums, the Super Bowls, the Sunday morning football games, and they would have them mauled by wild animals or they would have them killed by gladiators and the the crowd would just cheer their blood. And you read the accounts in Fox's Book of Martyrs and other accounts where they would go out singing. A mother and her, and, uh, her children and her husband would stand there ready to be slaughtered in this life singing praises to God. Kind of like in the book of Acts, where after they were flogged and beaten because of their their refusal to recant the Lord Jesus Christ, they went back to the early church rejoicing that they were found worthy enough to suffer like their Lord. How foreign that is to us. We would quit, we would quake, we would would deny that that, that we even know Jesus because surely God doesn't want us to go through that. Because we hold on to this life so much. How can that be joy? But let patience have its perfect 
work. And again, the idea of perfect here is that it reaches its goal or purpose that God has intended. It's finished. We're done. You now lack nothing. My brethren, count it all joys when you fall into various afflictions and trials and tribulation that are designed to test the genuineness of your faith by those afflictions. Because that, te- that faith is being tested and being exercised will produce in you the ability to endure, the ability to bear up under, the ability not to be crushed at anything thrown at you. But let that ability to endure, not to be crushed, have its perfect and complete work in you. Why? And here's where it gets exciting. It says that you now, you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That you will become like your faith that you'll become whole and sound, that you'll have all the needed parts, you'll have everything that you have to have the kind of confidence to live like Jesus ordained us as a church to live, to believe his promises and to trust his promises no matter what, come what may. Let me sum it all up for you. My brethren, count it all joy when... From the biblical perspective, it's when your faith is tested. From our perspective, it's when everybody just leaves us alone and lets us live our own life. No, it's not going to work that way. We're light and darkness. But when you fall, when I'm engulfed completely, when there's no way out, when there's no way to turn, and all I can see in the midst of my problem and affliction is my problem and affliction. When I fall into various trials, not just one trial, but they keep cascading upon me one after another, kind of like like it was in Job's life. Why? Because I know, I know by experience, I have a, um, not a cognitive knowledge, but a personal loving knowledge. I know that this testing of my faith produces something incredible in me. Whatever this testing is, God will see to it that it produces until it's finished patience. The ability to bear up under. The ability to trust him for the results of this and not worry about it myself. And if that's true, then I need to go ahead and embrace that patience and let that patience, that ability to persevere, I need to let it have its perfect and finished work not only in my circumstances, but also in me, in me, that I become like that, that I may be perfect, that I may reach my intended goal, that I may be finished, that I may be able to run the race with endurance, like Paul says. Why? Because once that happens, I am complete, I am whole, and I literally lack nothing. A faith prepper wants to exercise his faith to have this kind of relationship with Christ to be able to persevere no matter what happens at all, period. Now, we don't hear this preached much today because we have all bought into the the culture in which we live, the Laodicean 
church age that we are fine, that we have everything, that we don't need anything, that we're rich and, and everything is okay, that whatever need or problem we have, we don't have to pay, pray, pray about it because we have insurance and we have credit cards and we have a million different ways to be able to, to handle all those things. That I'll handle it myself, Lord, and if I get in a jam that I can't handle, then I'm going to ask you to handle it the way I want it done. Patience, waiting on God, is an anathema to most Christians today, especially in America. It is to me because we live in this instant gratification kind of society. I microwave dinners, um, Snapchats. Hey, I, I got to watch it. I get two shots at it. It's like 10 seconds long and then it's gone. You know what I mean? Nobody even hardly reads books anymore. We read tweets and blog posts and something really small. And Justice will tell you this, that if you put out a video that's three to four minutes long, people watch it. If it's over five minutes long, I ain't got time for that. True? Patience to be able to live like Christ did. I want to show you how important this is. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. And I want to, I want to show you how to how Jesus helped his disciples exercise their faith. I can imagine the conversation. Have you seen the stuff that I've done? Yes. It mesmerizes us. Raising Lazarus from the dead and, and all these miracles that took place, the feeding of the 5,000. And so if I was able to feed 5,000 or 7,000 men at different settings, do, do you think I'd be able to take care of you? Oh, yes, Lord, because I remember we gathered all the pieces together and there were like 12 basketfuls of food that lasted us for a long time. Do, do you remember the demonic people that came to, to me? What did I do? With a word. With a word, you just spoke the word and all of a sudden they were in their right mind and the demons fled. I even remember that, that crazy man in, in the Gadarenes that nobody would even hang around. I actually was afraid to even go meet him and he broke all those chains. And do you remember? I remember what you did, Lord. You, you just spoke the word and all those demons went into this herd of swine and boom, they were gone. And we left the man in his right mind. God, there's nothing you can't do, Lord. Do you remember when I... Sent you away by yourself when I was up in the uh, in the mountain praying and I came back down and I met you walking on the water. Do you remember how afraid you were? Oh, terrified. I actually thought it was some sort of ghost or demon out there. But then when I recognized it was you, what? Peter said, can I come to you? And you walked on water. Do, do, you, do you remember all that? Do you remember all the things I did? Yes. Would you like to do them? Yes. Then let's go into training. Matthew chapter 10. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. Same power you have. This is the power of the Holy Spirit over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. Well, this is only for the 12 disciples. Well, we read the book of Acts. This is spread to, to a lot of other people too. About how the early church, signs and wonders will be performing all the time that's going on here. This is the, this is the Holy Spirit coming. Now, the names of the, of the 12, and he lists all of those. And, and then verse 5 says, these 12 he sent out, and later on he sent out 70 with the same instructions. So it's not just the 12. But here's the 12. These he sent out and commanded them and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to act as an intern. I've trained you. You've seen me do it. Now it's your time to do it on your own. That's how we train people. Today. It's not just book learning. So I want you to go out and do exactly what I did, what you've seen me do, and I have given you the power to do that. But I have a couple of rules for you, and here they are. 
Do not go the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans. I don't want you to get all tied up at whether they're Democrat or Republican. I want you to go out and focus to the people that I have called you to go focus to. But go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach. Same message John the Baptist preached. The same message I preached. The same message you're to preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how will we know that? By the manifestations of the acts of Christ. Here's what you're to do. Heal the sick. Gosh, what, like Benny Hinn? No, heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. What, like touch them like you did? Yes, cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Do we get paid for this? No. Freely you have received, freely give. Oh, okay. So if I'm going to go out there with the power to raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, um, cast out demons, what about my own needs? What about the cars I'm going to drive? And what about the insurance? And where am I going to eat? And where am I going to sleep? And this is where your faith comes in. This is what I'm going to, how I'm going to teach you to exercise your faith. Verse 9. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. Don't take a dime with you or your credit cards or anything. Nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff. Don't take anything. Just go just like you are, dress like you are with what you have right now. We never send missionaries on the mission field like this. I mean, that's, that's irresponsible. Missionary decides that they want to uh, go overseas, and what they end up doing is the mission board decides they need $4,750 a month of support in order to do that. They spend a year or two traveling around to other churches telling them what they're going to do so the churches will finally support them enough to go on the mission field because they don't want to be encumbered by worrying about money. So they go on the mission field, and then after serving two or three years, they come back, and they have to go around to the same churches reporting what they did, what they're really doing, is making sure they can keep the same support. Well, that's just prudent. That's just, that's just wise, but it's not what Jesus did. Go. Just God called you to go. Go. If you'll read stories about the Philadelphia church age and about the great missionary movements and these, these just maids who God would say, I want you to go to China, and they would just go to the mission board and say, well, you ordained me to go to China. And they said, no, you have no theological education. You're just a maid. And she goes, I'm going anyway. And just goes and God works these miracles out because her faith had grown to that point. And it doesn't matter what man says, I'm, I'm going. Don't take money. Don't even take a bag to carry stuff. You can't be a, I don't want you to be a physical prepper here. Don't take two tunics. Can't even change our extra pair of sandals. Don't even take two staffs. Why? Because I will take care of you. Because a worker is worthy of his food, and a worker is worthy of his hire. I will supernaturally work things around to take care of you. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go in to the household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let the peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet, because I will hold them accountable for not recognizing my faith-filled servant. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for them on that day of judgment. 
Anyway, this is uh, this is this is exercising faith, and I'm not sure the disciples had it. I I, I know they did. Thomas didn't. Peter probably didn't. They all, at some point in time, fell. They all, at some point in time, didn't have enough faith to, to be able to handle the circumstances that were coming their way. But Jesus boxed them in. Listen, I'm going to make you trust me by letting you go with nothing. And the account we have of other accounts is when they come back, especially when he sent the 70 out, that they marveled, not that all their financial needs were met, but they marveled that even the demons were subject to them in the name of Christ. Do you remember? Do you have that kind of faith? He's provided it for us. He's told us this is what's possible for us, but it's up to us to be able to exercise that and to move in that direction. Let me give you an example. Turn to Acts chapter 1. I'm just going to go through this really quick. And all I want you to do today is just entertain the thought Maybe being a faith prepper is a little different than you thought it was. Jesus has got his disciples with him. There's 120 people, 120 that we know stayed after he was ascended into heaven. I want you to think about those 120. There is the 12 disciples, or 11 actually, Judas is gone. There's a couple other men, we know that because they, they, they chose which one they were going to have Judas's Place taken. Well, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a couple of other ladies that were hanging around Jesus. And if we, if we look at all the entourages mentioned by name, at most there's 20 to 22 people here that we know of. The rest of them, the other 100, we have no idea who they were. But they're obviously people who lived in Jerusalem or the surrounding areas. They're obviously people that had devoted their life to Christ. They're obviously people who, even though maybe they worked in the fields or they had to work every day just to earn the money to, to, buy food for their family, their, their culture was much different than ours. They, you know, you don't, you can't, if you've got no money to go to McDonald's, you can't use a credit card and, you know, have a meal today and pay for it tomorrow. I mean, if you didn't work, then you didn't get it. Most of the people here were not wealthy, and yet they had surrendered everything to follow Christ. We don't even know who these people are. And they had the concept of Christ wrong. Verse number six. Verse number five, it says, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized, future tense, with the Holy Spirit at some point in time in the future, but I'm not going to tell you when it is, but it's not all that long. Okay, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? No. You're still thinking temporal kingdom here. It's not, it, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father's put by his own authority, but you shall receive power. That's enough. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All of a sudden, these two angels show, and Jesus is ascending into heaven, and at least 120, maybe more, are standing there with their mouths open, watching what's going on. The angels speak and say, why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was raised this way will come again. And so they go back with joy into this upper room, 120 of them, and they wait. Well, for how long? Don't know. Well, I've got bills to pay. i got kids that are hungry. i got, you know, I, I got responsibilities. i got animals to feed. Doesn't matter. We're going to wait. God's going to somehow have to take care of that, and obviously he did. 
I've got all these responsibilities that I've encumbered myself to. I even told my brother I would come by and help him build his barn on Friday. You got to cancel that because there's something a little more important here. And what's important is trusting and holding your faith together and, and believing that God has something even greater for you. Verse number 14, they all continued with one accord in prayer with supplication with the, with the women, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And, you know, it goes on, and this lasts for 10 days. Could have lasted for 30, could have lasted for 10 years. But it lasted for 10 days until Pentecost came. And we find that in Acts chapter 2, they're all together. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Something miraculous happens. They're all up there and they're, they're speaking the word of God and they're being heard in all these different languages. And so what we have in Jerusalem at that time is Pentecost is we got Jews that lived in Jerusalem. We have Jews that lived in outlying areas. Some of them didn't even speak the language they were, all coming for their annual pilgrimage for Pentecost. And then Peter gets up and preaches this rather bold sermon. What I love about his sermon is the way he pointed his finger in their face continually, the Jesus Christ who you rejected and who you killed. Verse 40, chapter 2. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation and this false religion that you're holding on to. And the girls who gladly received his word were baptized that day. About 3,000 souls were added to them. What did they do? Did they all go home? Well, some maybe. But what did they do? They were on vacation. They've traveled from Gastonia all the way to Nashville, Tennessee to be able to celebrate Pentecost. They traveled by foot or by donkey. They have a little bit of money with them, enough to get there and get back. They've got the clothes on their back and, and all the possessions that they have. And all of a sudden, their life is radically changed. And so what do they do? I need to learn more about this. I need to know more about this. Jesus changes everything. I know, but I only got two weeks off for my employer. God, you have to give me another job. You have to work something out. I, I don't know because everything has changed and my faith somehow is being exercised to the point where serving you is more important than serving me. And they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. I have no idea what those were. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Why? Because I've got a whole bunch of people from Gastonia now worshiping in Nashville, Tennessee. So the people in Nashville are having to sell their possessions in order to support other believers in Christ that maybe not even speak their own dialect or they don't even know or like or trust. How does that happen? by the exercising of faith. I don't have to trust you. I just have to trust him because it's not up to you I'm expecting to receive from. It's up to him. Totally different than how we live today. And they sold their possessions, verse 45, and goods and divide them among all as anyone has need. They continued daily in the court and, and breaking bread from house to house, ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was added to the church daily, those that were being saved. What, 3,000? What, like 3,500? 4,000? 4,500? 5,000? Oh my goodness, this, this, these are bigger than the largest churches in America right now. How does that happen? How, how, does that, how does that take place? 
exercising this faith. Chapter 4, Peter and John are going to the temple. I'm telling you, the temple has the power to crush them, to kill them, to flog them, to destroy them. And all of a sudden, they see this man who was lame. They could have ignored him. Everybody else did. They could have just given him 20 bucks. Everybody else did, but not them, because their faith was being exercised. I, I'm, I'm, the, I, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, if I had the faith of a mustard seed, this guy getting healed is nothing. Matter of fact, nothing is impossible. And I saw Christ himself do that over and over and over again. So they're there. Man looks at him, Peter looks at him, he expects to receive some, some gift from them. Verse number four of chapter three. And fixing his eyes on him with John and Peter, he said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, because I've learned to function without that. But what I do have, which is far greater than silver and gold, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And what happened? Do you think Peter doubted? I would. Man, did I, did I overstep my bounds here? I mean, I mean, what if he doesn't? This look bad on me. Well, it, it's not about us. I tell you what I do have. I do have something that only God gave me. I do have something that sets me apart from, from everybody else. I do have the Holy Spirit living within me. I, I'm a receptacle of God himself. And in the name of his son, I exercise faith. And I say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he reached over in the exercise of that faith and took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And in the process of Peter acting on his faith, immediately it says that his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And the man started jumping around and praising God. And, and then persecution took place. And then terrible things happened because whenever God moves, you can expect Satan to move also. Peter preaches this sermon. It's another very pointed sermon um, where he basically says that you've been spoken the word of God and you've rejected God, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And as he's speaking this sermon with this healed man just holding on to him, all of a sudden the temple guards come and his worst nightmare takes place and they arrest him and they put him in jail and they bring him out the next morning and they say, with the power to kill him, you shall no longer Speak or teach in the name of Jesus Christ, chapter 4, verse number uh, 18. So they called them back and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. So they threatened them. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your job. You're going to, we're going to throw you in jail. We're going to get bankrupt. You're going to bankrupt you. Everything that you value right now is going to be taken away from you if you speak anymore in this name of Jesus. And their response was, I don't care. Gosh, what kind of faith do you have to do that? Faith that's exercised. Faith that if I'm strong with this and I trust God a little bit more and he makes me strong with that and strong with that and so they let him go. And then they go back to the church. This is the part that always gets me. You know, we're having a prayer meeting and we're afraid. 
the government's going to come and they're going to take my job and my house. And if they take my job and my house and my car, then I'm going to be homeless. And I don't want to be homeless because I've lived my whole life not being homeless. And I really like the situations I'm in right now. I like to go to Myrtle Beach and I like to eat at nice restaurants. And I just like my life. And, and all of a sudden, Peter comes in and my first reaction is, can you just calm it down? Can you stop? Do you realize that your fervency for Jesus is going to cause us all to get in trouble? But it's not what they did. Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit like we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But their focus and their faith had been exercised to the point where they're trusting Jesus from what he says. You seek my kingdom and my righteousness first, and I'll take care of all the things that you're afraid of losing. And when they saw this, the church broke into this prayer adulation, praising God for, for all the amazing things that happened saying, God, give us more boldness to preach. Chapter 4, verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of those were believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that anything of their own, that things that they possessed was their own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. Wow. Ananias and Sapphira come, and God deals with that in a profound way. And then after that, verse number 12 of chapter 5, that that they just brought sick people and laid them in the street so just the shadows would pass upon them and people would get healed. Then, of course, the, the apostles were imprisoned and they were flogged and they were miraculously free. I mean, amazing things were taking place for one reason and one reason only. It was because they were exercising their faith. Now, listen, listen. Um, the book of Acts is included in our Bible, I believe, as to show us what church is supposed to be like. I mean, we don't know anything about church. We know Jesus talked about it, then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit fell, and then now we're part of a church, but I don't know if what we're part of is kind of how it should be. So, Lord, can you show us what church looks like in real time? Sure. And I'll even show you what church looks like in hostile environments even more hostile than it's ever been for any of us in America. So if this is how they function during hostile times, imagine how much faith you can exercise during relative calm times when all of a sudden you're not chastised for doing that. You can do even greater things because there's less fear of retaliation. But the history of the church has been exactly the opposite. My own history, my own life has been the opposite. Then instead of striving for fervency, I have a tendency, and I'm sure many of you do too, just to fall back into where it's comfortable. You know what? I, I just want to do my own little thing. I want to raise my kids, and I want to go to church, and I want to put the fish symbol on my car, and you know, I want to trust God to use me to be able to do the things that I want to do. And when there could be so much more if we learn to just exercise this faith. All I'm asking you today is to just consider, consider that maybe Jesus did mean what he says. And maybe there is something more important than what we're totally devoting our life to today. That maybe, maybe this life with Christ is more than just a seasoning on our life to bless the things we want to do. But maybe, just maybe, 
possible by God himself living within us to turn this world upside down for him. And maybe, maybe if we just believed him to the point that, no, this is what God's word says and therefore I'm going to believe it even though my mind tells me I shouldn't, maybe as we begin taking those baby steps in faith, that God will show himself so strong in us that it will be an example to others. Just maybe. Amen? Let me pray.